animal on the brink of extinction gets several tiny boosts from a South Dakota conservation program. From SDPB, today is Friday, February 16th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we check in on the red wolf pups at the Great Plains Zoo. We'll also hear an update from our friend Stephanie Arney about her visit to the Drew Barrymore Show. Do you live in the Midwest or do you live in the Great Plains? A new survey offers a few surprises about how we see ourselves. Then think back to how you did your banking before the pandemic and how that has changed today. We'll look at how banking regulations seek to keep up with how we move our money. Plus, a National Geographic photography exhibit comes to the state. More on women, a century of change. That's later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Do you live in the Midwest or do you live maybe in the Great Plains? The second in a series of surveys about Midwestern identity has been released. The poll is from Middle West Review and Emerson College. I talked with South Dakota historian John Lauk about the latest research and what it says about who we are and who we see ourselves becoming. Let's start with the original survey and then dig into those follow-up questions. Well, the first survey, which we did in October of 2023, um, we did a very large poll of 22,000 people across 22 states. And we just asked a very simple question. Do you live in the Midwest or don't you? And, of course, we got responses back from Iowa and Minnesota that were 97%, which makes perfect sense. But then we asked people on the edges of the region, are you in the Midwest? So places like Arkansas and Kentucky and Pennsylvania. And, of course, those numbers came in very low, uh, as one would expect. Um, There were some places that were a little bit surprising in that first poll, like Oklahoma, came in majority uh, Midwestern. I think there's an explanation for that, which we can talk about. Uh, But also, I thought the number was higher than I expected for Colorado. It was 42% and slightly lower for Ohio, uh, which was 78%. So using uh, that as a baseline, we decided to do a deeper dive into these edge areas around the Midwest because Everyone agrees that Iowa and Minnesota and Wisconsin are Midwestern. We don't really need more and more data on that. So we went out to the margins. We went to Ohio, Missouri, and Colorado. And, of course, we threw in South Dakota because that's where we're from. Lori, we got to take care <laughs> of the home, home crowd. And we did a deeper dive and asked 2,000 people, in each of those states, how they identify. And instead of just asking, do you identify as Midwestern, we gave them more options to make the question a little more complicated. So in the case of South Dakota, uh, we said, are you a Midwesterner or do you live in the Great Plains or in the West? And that gave us more finely grained uh, answers to these questions. And we did the same thing with Missouri, Colorado, and Ohio. Okay, so the questions are slightly different. Ohio, in this case, 
comes back really strong Midwestern. What were their options and what did you learn about the people of Ohio? Ohio is nestled in there up against the Appalachian Mountains and it has the Ohio River on the uh, southern border, which people see as the traditional boundary between the South and the Midwest. And so we gave people in Ohio the option, are you a Midwesterner? or are you from the South or Appalachia? Mm -hmm. And the Southern number was very low, like two or 3%. And that was mostly located down along those river counties next to the Ohio River. But we received almost 10% respondents saying Appalachia. And that makes perfect sense because Southeastern Ohio borders on West Virginia. A lot of those towns are river towns and they do a lot of business in West Virginia and the Appalachian foothills extend into southeastern Ohio. So it makes a lot of sense. And the Midwest number went up to 87% this time uh, with the bigger sample, uh, 2,000 instead of 600, which we had in the previous poll. So that makes a lot of sense for Ohio. All right. On the other hand, let's bring it back to what everybody probably listening to this show wants to know the most about. We have an idea that the river makes a difference about whether you consider yourself Midwestern if you live on the east side or on the west side. But what did you learn when you dove deeper and asked more people in South Dakota about their Midwestern identity? Well, in the first big poll last October, we received the number 92% of people in South Dakota say they're Midwestern. And that was just an up or down question with one option. So we changed it this time to give them a little more uh, variety in terms of responses. Midwest, Great Plains, or West. And the Midwest number drops to 66%, and you get 30% of people saying Great Plains, only 3% saying Western. Now, this makes sense because uh, probably in that first poll, a lot of people who would have said Great Plains, since they didn't have more options, chose Midwest. Mm -hmm. And when you map the data, it shows the strongest Midwestern areas are in the southeastern part of the state, nestled up against Minnesota and Iowa. And as you go further west, that Midwestern identity shrinks a bit and you get more Great Plains identification. And that fits with the topography. It fits with what we say about, you know, going west of the river, things change. This all kind of adds up. It's it's more granular. Uh, It shows that there is this uh, tilt toward the Great Plains in these central and western counties. I also thought there'd be a little bit more western because, you know, Mm -hmm. people in Durgis and and out in Harding County, I mean, that's kind of western, very heavily ranching and uh, some oil wells up there in the northwest corner, but western doesn't make uh, a big splash here. I would say one other thing that's interesting about the South Dakota data is that there seems to be kind of an age differential that would be fun to explore. Mm -hmm. Younger people, so 25 and under, 76% of them say they're in the Midwest. On the other hand, people who are 70 and over, only 62% of them say Midwest. Now, that's only a 15-point differential, but it's sort of interesting. And I have a theory about it if you want to hear it. I do, indeed. (laughs) 
<laughs> so this could spawn a lot of sociological studies or yeah. something, uh, but and it's hard to prove. But one thing that could be going on is that the younger you are, and I don't want to say this in a negative way, in a sense, the less grounded you are and the more digital you are. You live in the ether more than older people who maybe were farm people and out on the land and saw stuff and paid attention to precipitation and when the crops are going to come in and what the weather was like. So you have a better sense of physical space. But if you're a digital native, you're 25 and under, you may have less of a sense of topographical nuance than people in an older generation. Now, that's completely a theory, uh, but it kind of makes sense. And then you might be more likely to call yourself a Midwesterner even if you live in what might be the Great Plains? Midwestern is more of a generic category for living in the middle of a country. But if you're older, you have a sense that if you're in southeastern South Dakota, you get more rain, the crops are better, you are closer to the traditional Iowa Midwest. But if you're living um, out in Jones County, where it's a little bit more arid, and there's more ranching, and there's you know, things are just feel a little more Western. You may be more conscious of this subcategory, mm-hmm. Great Plains. Total theory. Total theory. Lauren. Yeah. We, could need also... a, we need a smart, we need a smart <laughs> graduate student to go out there and do a couple hundred interviews and yeah. find this out. You could also um, be noticing an increase in a stronger Midwestern identity in a young generation, that they're claiming something that even stronger than maybe their parents and grandparents did. We are Midwesterners. That that is true. That is very true. That's super interesting. There's more to that conversation online, including how folks in Missouri see themselves. We will put a link up on our website after today's show so you can click through the full survey results. That data, by the way, is open sourced. Students and researchers are encouraged to dive in and use the data for their own further inquiries. Well, the way we bank has changed, especially since the pandemic. From electronic signatures to digital currency, South Dakota bankers strive to modernize with the industry. State legislators also have a say in banking regulations, and those debates can get technical and sometimes controversial. Last year, for example, Governor Christy Noem vetoed a provision to update what's known as the Uniform Commercial Code. And that legislation has been adjusted and it has returned for consideration this session. So let's get an update today from Carl Adam. He is president of the South Dakota Bankers Association. He's joining us on the phone. Mr. Adam, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Lori. Good to be with you. So first, let's talk about how the pandemic changed banking and start with those electronic signatures. How quickly did expectations change? change? Well, Lori, that's a very good question. And um, I think that the pandemic has um, created um, the opportunity for customers of banks and other um, business interests to be able to sign electronically. Um, Not that this was um, created recently, but it's been out there. 
but um, like my, myself, I'm creatures of habit. You do things out of out of routine. The pandemic hit. Uh, a lot of our bank locations across the state, their lobbies were closed. Um, South Dakota and our banks here um, were heavily involved in the Paycheck, Paycheck Protection Program. As a result, um, a lot of electronic um, loan documents were done as a result of the pandemic. So it became um, a really nice plan B for a lot of customers and bankers. And as a result of that, um, electronic signatures and loan documents and so forth is becoming more and more uh, popular. All right, probably here to stay. That was addressed in the state legislature. In what ways? What kinds of updates needed to happen to reflect that? Well, um, very good question. So the Uniform Commercial Code is, um, as you mentioned in the intro here, uh, was adopted or wasn't adopted, but we are running the bills again this year, the 2022 amendments to the Uniform Commercial Code that deals with digital assets. So um, the digital assets aspect of it is being updated. So there's a new Article 12 that deals with digital assets, electronic money as an example, and so forth. Um, also included in these updates is the uh, uh, enforcement um, going from a wet signature. So when you're in the bank and signing your loan documents, as an example, sign with a blue pen and so forth. Now um, the opportunity to do it electronically is, uh, is available. And so these uh, 2022 amendments also modernize that to allow those electronic signatures to be accepted uh, from state to state um, and providing legal certainty when banks are looking to pool loans and sell them onto the secondary market. So uh, prior to this update, um, that wasn't contemplated by the courts, but the 2022 amendments to the UCC will um, allow that and make it uh, very um, easy and applicable across all states. Okay, so last um, session, when you were working on modernizing or updating the UCC or the Uniform Commercial Code, it happened to coincide with some high-profile national stories about bank failures. Did that national news sneak into the debate at all? Did it impact any of last year's debate? You know, as it relates to the bank failures from March of 2023 and the Uniform Commercial Code, it was just it was a coincidence, uh, but it really didn't have a great deal of impact um, as it relates to the UCC. Um, however, um, we were very much uh, um, paying close attention to that when those banks started to fail, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and so forth. And by all press accounts, you know, there's been a lot of um, research and review of what caused those bank failures. Um, it was nothing, there wasn't a contagion. These were extremely unique failures um, out, of, uh, out of the norm. You know, the safety and soundness of the banks across the country are there, but there was some unique circumstances uh, as a result of uh, a couple of those failures. Um, you know, electronically um, having the ability to transfer money very quickly from the application on your phone, as an example. But it didn't have anything to do with the Uniform Commercial Code. It was just a, a matter of coincidence. All right, so let's talk about this legislative session. Last year, there was a veto. Governor Christy Noem said, hey, let's, we've got some time to talk about this and figure it out. You expressed some concern at that point because you said, you know, we need to get these regulations, um, you know, finalized, modernized. There needs to be an on-ramp so banks can work on 
implementation, how are bankers dealing with the consequences of the delay, and then we'll talk about what's happening in Pure Now. But first, okay. how has the past year been for the delay that uh, you didn't want? Well, uh, that's a it's a good lead-in, and let me just go back and share that the Uniform Commercial Code has been alive and well and protected us from, you know, um, all of us South Dakotans and uh, citizens from all the states for the last 70 years. So the revisions and the updates do happen from time to time. And um, oftentimes the Uniform Law Commission, which is the principal crafter of the Uniform Commercial Code, along with um, Uniform Law Commissioners representing all states in the country, the legal community, they go into drafting sessions and open sessions uh, to allow feedback and uh, open discussions on how to properly do this and the proper definitions that need to be uh, put into into this state law. Um, and they oftentimes do that with an, an enactment date somewhere in the future. So it was asked upon, you know, all state banking associations in uh, a fall meeting of 2022 to, you know, enact or bring the 2022 amendments to the state legislatures during the 23 legislative session. Uh, assuming that there would be passage, it would have an enactment date of 7-1 of the next year, so uh, July 1 of 2024. And the reason for that is because it does take time. It takes time to um, re redo and rewrite um, legal documents, uh, banking documents and forms for disclosures for customers, uh, understanding the rules that are being enacted and so forth. So it was important to have that that uh, that runway to be able to do it. Uh, unfortunately, that wasn't the case uh, last year because uh, we were met with some greater concern out there. Um, so we didn't have much of a choice other than to uh, take another pass at it this year, trying to um, quell and you know the concerns uh, of the government and also of the public. And I think that we're on a much better track this year. All right. Last year, the veto was a bit of a surprise, though. So what makes you think that you've made the changes? What kinds of things are you hearing from the governor's office, for example, or from lead lawmakers that say, hey, this time, I think we're going to move forward? Where do we stand during this legislative well, session? Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that question. So what we did in the off season, once the legislature was done, we kind of took a, a review of uh, the veto message that the governor presented to us. And we, we had discussions with the business lobby here in South Dakota, including the South Dakota Bankers Association, South Dakota Retailers, uh, South Dakota Chamber of Commerce, uh, South Dakota Trust Association, and a number of other supportive business lobbies. And we, uh, we reached out to the governor's office and we had some very uh, good discussion with them um, trying to address um, our path forward. What can we do to accommodate the concerns? So we initiated a bill this year, Lori, uh, House Bill 1161. Uh, House Bill 1161 addresses the veto message, uh, the first point of the veto message from last year, which was the concern that uh, the UCC um, 2022 amendments would be a pathway or a, a, an opening opportunity for a central bank digital currency. Mm -hmm. um, we, we know that isn't the case because state law, this is state law, this can't be created by the state of South Dakota. This bill would not do that. So what we did with 1161 is we put, uh, as my father would say, we wrote cow on the side of cow. 
we indicated that uh, in this bill, that this bill does not in- construe, endorse, or support a central bank digital currency, and this bill would prohibit the state of South Dakota from accepting a central bank digital currency in the form of payment. And if an individual or a business wanted to accept a central bank digital currency as a form of payment, they also had to provide an alternative payment source. Mm-hmm. So um, that was uh, a kind of the um, what we did uh, is a companion bill to another bill that were brought back, the uh, 2022 amendments to the UCC. And um, both of these bills are advancing through the process as we speak. We also have a Senate uh, concurrent resolution that opposes the development of central bank currency, uh, you know, a non-binding thing the Senate passed. What's the point of that? Is it this further, you know, planting a flag and saying this is what we think should happen in the world of digital currency here in South Dakota? And also here's what we think should happen at the federal level. Is that all that is really? That's exactly what it is. It's a point of emphasis. Um, You know, we just put that point of emphasis out there that um, supports the House Bill 1161 regarding central bank digital currencies and also on House Bill 1163, the companion bill, which brought back the the UCC amendments for another pass this year. We conspicuously stated in the document, it's 117 pages, it's, it's it's a heavy read, um, but it's 117 pages, but most of it is existing state law. Mm-hmm. There were some, uh, like 84 times they took out or they, they struck um, writings and put in record. So it has to be noted on all of these pages and so forth, and the new Article 12. But we conspicuously stated in the document that this does not support, endorse, or create a central bank digital currency. So mm-hmm. we wanted to provide the assurances that uh, – you know, the banking industry and all the business lobby that was supportive of this is has nothing but the best intent, and the goal is to provide legal certainty for all businesses, not only in the banking world, but in the, in the legal profession, retail profession, because the Uniform Commercial Code is the uh, invisible infrastructure that protects all of us, mm. and uh, we just wanted to make sure that uh, we were clear um, with the lawmakers and if there's questions, that we were able to to address them. Carl Adam is president of the South Dakota Bankers Association. We will keep track of that legislation as it continues to move forward. So far, it's moved forward pretty swiftly. Carl, thanks so much for being here with us today. We appreciate the update. My pleasure, Lori. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The most endangered wolf species in the world has six new members, all born last May at the Great Plains Zoo in Sioux Falls. And now the zoo is asking for your help to pick names for the pups. Denise DiPaolo is Director of Marketing and PR at the Great Plains Zoo and Butterfly House and Aquarium. And Stephanie Arney, our friend, Conservation Director at the Great Plains Zoo. They're both gathered around the table here in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Denise, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Stephanie, hi. Hi, friend. (laughs) You've been all over the world, and now you're back here with us. Yes. And we're happy to see that. Yeah, I'm very happy to be back. It's it's been a great couple of years. Can't believe it's already been a couple years of being back. But I've enjoyed um, catching up with friends from high school and college again, catching up and being around and seeing you in the SDPB 
crew more. Yeah, yeah. And just the community in general is fantastic here. Yeah, so Love if it. you don't know Stephanie, uh, who was on our program before uh, through, I mean, Mutual <laughs> Omaha, Swimming with Sharks, you were just on the Drew, Drew Barrymore show, and now you've landed all this knowledge and uh, you know science communication skill with the Great Plains Zoo in Sioux Falls, which I think we're pretty lucky to have you here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> to give us a little behind the scenes about the Drew Barrymore Show because you just went to talk about a, a, a nationwide zoo initiative about what's a pet and what's not a pet. Yeah, Tell I, us a little bit about that visit. And I mean, as you know, for those who have been following my career for the last 17 years, but really in the last 10, um, when you work in the conservation field, there's a lot of different messages, right? We have mm -hmm. so many messages on conserving wildlife and wild places and how to be better consumers, living a more sustainable life. But this message was focused on being a responsible pet owner. Okay, So it's already tough sometimes to care for and train our dogs and cats, which are very domesticated and used to living in our homes. But we, we do see a prevalence of people wanting exotic pets or even illegal pets. In this particular situation, potbelly pigs, which is what we brought on the show, are legal to have, and they are wonderful. They are clean, they're incredibly smart, but the problem is people see little piglets and they think they're really cute and they want them. And there are breeders out there that are trying to take advantage of that. And so they're like, oh, this is a teacup pig, so they'll stay tiny like a teacup and they trick people into buying them, and then they get them home, and they grow and grow and grow to 80 to 180 pounds, and they want to have a lot of space. They can be destructive. They're extremely needy and attentive, like a toddler, like exactly like a toddler. Mm -hmm. So the main goal was one, th one thing was having giving Drew and Maisie Williams an incredible pig experience, but the other was a moment for us to share, like be a responsible pet owner, do your research. Don't get pets that shouldn't be in your home, mm. and make sure that you provide these home, uh, these pets, a great space to live, and that it's legal and not impacting conservation work that's happening out in the field. Yeah. So let's dive into that conservation work. The real conservation work that we want to bring to light today, Denise, is the, with the red wolf. So talk a little bit about the pups and the mm -hmm. naming uh, con contest here, like what you're asking for community engagement. Then we'll really get into the red wolf and the problems, you know, the plight of this species. But Denise, what uh, what's happening right now? So we have these pups, as you mentioned, were born last May, and we are so excited. Uh, a litter of six, that's a huge litter for red wolves. We've had twos and threes before at our zoo with our previous breeding pair. And now with this pair, it's their first litter, and they've had six, and they've done an incredible job. Six healthy red wolves when we have about... 20 of them in the wild and yes. a small number in human care that we are actively working to uh, diversify genetics and breed for a reintroduction program. So these pups are part of that program <clears throat> and uh, before they're placed at other zoos, which will likely happen in the next year, it's important that they have names and so that uh, they can be identified later in life as they move through this program and perhaps their pups might be part of that next group that gets reintroduced. We don't know. And 
the uh, yes, <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> um, but right now, um, getting to name them, we really want the community to be involved. So the zookeepers have had a chance to, uh, they took a big bank of names and voted and narrowed them down to three names for each pup that really uh, say something about their personality. And then the public, we invite them to go to greatzoo.org slash donate and scroll down just a teeny bit and you'll see the form. You can fill it out and choose between three names for each of the red wolves. The names are all pulled from the indigenous languages of the wolves' native range. And then it costs $6, so six pups, a buck a pup, um, to donate to the zoo uh, to fill out your ballot. And we're also, there's a space if you'd like to donate a little more. We highly encourage that. But six bucks isn't bad. This is all about the the zoo's mission, but the forward-facing mission, Denise, is that connectivity, helping families, helping, uh, you know, people of interest in the community say, I can be part of this you know, concert because the the red wolf itself is not necessarily going to be a showy zoo highlight. They're kind of shy, mm-hmm. um, but there is a way to engage with this, and and this is just one of the ways the zoo is inviting people to do that. Absolutely, and this. Uh this species, so our exhibit at our zoo right now, you can see them pretty closely because we have eight wolves in this uh, in this exhibit. We're working uh, right now to uh, plan on building a larger exhibit for these animals, and the money from this fundraiser will help us to create that larger habitat because we really don't want these wolves to become habituated to humans. Mm-hmm. They're one of the only animals at our zoo that we don't do hands-on training with, where the bears, the tigers, you know, we can get them to, you know, stand up, show us your tummy, open your mouth. The wolves, we don't do this with because when they are reintroduced, we want them to have as many wild behaviors as possible so that they're not running up to a rancher or running into a road and getting hit by a car. Yeah. All right, Stephanie, let's talk about the red wolf in the wild. Uh, I'm guessing habitat problems. What has the plight been? So when when humans started encroaching on wild spaces, so long ago, right, they were competing with the predators for land. And then there were predator programs where they were literally actively going out and decreasing populations of predators such as the American red wolf, which is primarily in the east and southeast of the United States. And I just want to point out, this is our wolf. This is an endemic, which means only found here in the United States. They're not found in Canada. They're not found in Mexico. Um, Gray wolves, eagles, they travel around. Okay, this is our wolf. So we... We know how important they are to ecosystems, just like any other predator, Um, but this one has really been attacked over the years. And even when numbers started to get better because of breeding programs that our zoo, Point Defiance Zoo, St. Louis Zoo, Smithsonian National Zoo, they're all working together to increase these numbers. And just when they get high enough, there's another person that campaigns and tries to scare people about wolves. And they really are not big, bad wolves. They have a bad rap because people are scared of them and they want to stop what they're afraid of. But that is not the case with the American red wolf. They are shy. They contribute to the ecosystem. They are they are controlling prey species. And they are not coyotes either. Mm-hmm. And so our goal, working all together, is to increase their numbers. So currently we have 50 zoos that do hold uh, American red wolves. And we have about 280 right now in our facilities uh, uh, with breeding programs. And every year we work together to find out which pups are the best to grow up into juveniles and then be released out into the wild into North Carolina, which is basically the only space that's left right now. 
But like Denise said, it is not a large space. It is surrounded by highways and we have people actively hunting them because of fear and we have highways. So we are working hard to de to decrease those interactions and that type of conflict. And thankfully it is working and it's only going to get better from here. It gives me tremendous hope. Yeah. All right. So the the breeding pair that the parents of these pups, mm -hmm. do they do this every year, every few years? What's in the future? Are there more pups coming from this zoo? Yes. Or does it spread out? I mean, that's the, the yeah. hope, right? Okay. We have a really great breeding pair. They um, just met recently and they already produced five or six pups, excuse me. Typically it's three to four. They can have more, but we had six, which means that we have two very healthy American red wolves. So these six more than likely will not be put out in the wild because our habitat, like Denise said, is a is just not as big as it needs to be. But like she said, that we are working on that actively. Mm -hmm. We're extremely passionate about contributing to this project. So as it gets larger and we can decrease any opportunity for habituation with our guests, we want them to enjoy them and see them, but yeah. decrease that, then potentially the next round or the next round of pups could be excellent candidates to be released out into the wild. Mm. Do people kind of get the idea of a comeback being possible? It, it, there's so many yes. important stories. The <laughs> American bison. Yeah. Right? All of these zoos came together and U.S. Fish and Wildlife partnering together and we brought the American bison back. But there are hundreds of species that have been saved because of the efforts of accredited zoological facilities. Yeah. All right. Those highways. Are there creative solutions to that? Because that seems to be, it seems like fear. You could really listen to what's happening. You know, what ranchers, for example, are saying you can come up with solutions because most people want the same thing if you can just get of them course. together. However, the highway seems to me to be more intractable and more difficult because yep. yeah, it's <laughs> tough, right? You can't talk when you're driving in a car yeah. and you're able to go 65 to 75 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. You're not thinking about what could be running, you know, trying to cross paths and expand their their habitat. You know, it's a little bit harder. So different things that we have tried. We've put up really large signs, very clear communicative signs. Um, there's certain types of barriers in areas so that the wolves cannot cross or jump. And recently we have put on collars on most of the wolves that are released out into the, the wild and they are reflective so that people can see them before they even run across the road. And so far that is slowly but surely working. Interesting. All right. Um, Denise, other conservation programs at the zoo that have a community engagement piece right now that you want to surface for listeners? So um, we've been really working to refine our conservation programs over the past year or so since Stephanie has been uh, first our interim conservation director and now here with us full time. Uh, we're so glad to have you with us, Stephanie. Um, and one of the things we're really starting to work on is focusing on our native South Dakota species, especially from our prairies, including the, the Dakota skipper and the black-footed ferret. And we're still giving support to our global partners who are working with rhino and snow leopard populations as well. Um, but 
the best thing that the public can do right now is to uh, to help by donating. Uh-huh. So a lot of the field work that we're doing, we're sending staff out to Lower Brule, to Wind Cave, to these places where we're finding uh, black-footed ferret populations, which we once thought were extinct, um, to go out and spotlight them, catch them, um, do vaccines uh, so that they can be a healthy population, and uh, and then release them back with, uh, do they do a collar or a microchip stuff? How do, how do they how do we track them? It's kind of a mix of both. Okay. Yep. A mix of both. And so right now we do have our staff going out to do that work usually in the fall. And we, like, like you said, we, we work with a lot of uh, reservation staff, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, our South Dakota Game Fish and Parks, the National Parks. Again, collaborative effort, big time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been really rewarding for our staff to do that. It, but the biggest issue is these, it's the prairie dogs that are struggling from a, a plague sure. and that is affecting their food. And we know how important prairie dogs are to prairies as well. And so it's really not, it's not always about just the American red wolf or just the bison, right? It's about that ecosystem that all animals depend on, especially as humans, we depend on that for survival. I want to bring it back to the Drew Barrymore show for this reason. With that kind of a platform, which you have had throughout your career, Stephanie, um, it's, it's rare, it seems rare to hear conversations about the grasslands or the black-footed ferret of South Dakota, which is what an amazing story and how interesting that is, or the Dakota skipper. When we hear these stories, we're fascinated by them. We want the entire nation to understand that what's happening in a zoo in South Dakota matters. So how do we get you back on the Drew Barrymore show? <laughs> like, there's no vote. You, you know, we can't vote to see this is our favorite guest. I mean, are there ways that the people of South Dakota can help elevate those kinds of connections so that those kinds of stories that you carry from here end up in the national spotlight because they're often overlooked? Thank you so much for asking that. I'm so bad. Denise is always like... <laughs> you know, such a champion, and I'm always just blabbing. It's like, that's right. No, we, this is an opportunity to reach you that is listening right now to help. So like Denise said, donating to our conservation fund is a huge way to help. But in order to get a, in front of more and more people to help us with our conservation mission, please, pretty please, go on Facebook and Instagram or go on Drew Barrymore Show's website, anywhere you can reach their socials and Put a comment tagging the Great Plains Zoo and Stephanie Arney and say, we loved this segment. This person is representing South Dakota and the Great Plains Zoo Conservation Mission. We are so proud. Uh, We would love to see them back on this show, CRR Zoo back on that show. So please make those comments. Making that effort does truly make a difference. They will notice. They're not going to miss South Dakotans, that's for sure. (laughs) We are going to make a statement. (laughs) We've got some time on our hands. It's winter. You know, we can uh, can get some things done. All right, so I just want to circle back a little bit. If these are the things that you're interested in, obviously in public radio, we can't tell you uh, where to donate or what to do on social media. But we can say if you're interested in learning more, we will put things up on our website website at sdpb.org slash news. So thank you so much for these wonderful stories. We look forward to the next time that you join us. Thank you for having us. are listening to In the Moment on SDPB. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, more than 100 images pulled from National Geographic's archives are now on display at the Washington Pavilion in Sioux Falls. The exhibition Women, a Century of Change seeks to capture snapshots of the lives of women from 30-plus countries stretching from today back to the turn of the century. It runs 
from now until June 30th. And Jana Anderson is lead curator of the Visual Arts Center at the Pavilion. And she's also stopped by the studio here in downtown Sioux Falls to say hello. Jana, welcome back. Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me. This is a big, exciting, exciting exhibit because the depth that National Geographic can pull from historically Mm -hmm. and the work they're doing now Mm -hmm. is pretty impressive. Tell me a little bit about how this exhibit came to the state. Um, So this exhibit was curated originally in 2019, um, and it was curated to celebrate the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. And they pulled 100 images from 100 years um, to really celebrate women's lives from all over the world. So it's a cultural, diverse experience. Uh, There are so many amazing stories being told through photography. Um, So it's a really celebration of women. It's a celebration of what National Geographic does. And it's also a celebration of photography as an artistic medium. Mm. You know, when I was in college, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted Mm. to be a National Geographic photographer. Mm -hmm. Here I am in broadcasting. (laughs) But last summer, I got to go out to the back hills and, you know, take my camera and some lenses and really take some pictures in the forest. Just brought everything back to me about what I love about photography as a medium. When you Mm -hmm. look through these pictures, what stands out to you about the possibilities of of photography as art? It's just so powerful. Um, I did bring this quote from one of the photographers who's represented in the exhibit. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an American photographer named Jodi Cobb, and I think she really speaks to that. There's so many stories being told in the exhibit, but her quote says, uh, photography gave me insight and compassion into other people's lives and what it means to be human. It was my passport to the unknown. Mm. Uh, And I think that's just a really powerful example of what this entire exhibit is really about. And she's a real adventurer. Mm -hmm. Is you know, we just had Stephanie Arney on Mm -hmm. who's like swam with sharks and does all these (laughs) things in the wild. But um, some of these women photographers, that is what they were doing. You know, they're they're getting on a plane, they're getting in a you know, a vehicle, they're they're making it to a remote location and they're bringing the world to us. And it makes a difference that they're female photographers. It makes a difference that they have brought their own perspective into the field. There's a a section of the show uh, titled Through the Lens of these various photographers. So seeing their perspectives as told through the photography that they have taken. And it's really true. This this exhibit is taking those travels and bringing it to us and to this community. Yeah. All right. So you've got a whole host of programs that are around this exhibition. So give us an idea of what what you have planned. First of all, it's a really educational experience for people of all ages, demographics, so everyone should really see this show. Inside the exhibit, there's a lot of educational interactive opportunities uh, to engage with the work. But we also are planning a three-part speaker series in addition to the show. Uh, The first one is on February 27th, and it's called Uniting Generations of South Dakota Women. So we're really bringing the community of the Midwest and the perspectives being told and spoken here uh, to connect with that exhibit. All right, so we'll put information up on our website about that. But what are you hoping as a curator from any exhibit, really, but from this one particularly, the kinds of conversations that it might spark? You know, you're, you're going, mm-hmm. you're at the pavilion, you get a snack, it's a nice mm-hmm. day, you know, your kid plays in the sculpture garden maybe, but there's a tale to this that you want the experience to, to leave with people, something they, they take behind. What do you, what do you hope? people do when Mm -hmm. they come through an art exhibition? 
Um, so this, the exhibit is focused around a few different themes, and those themes are joy, beauty, love, wisdom, strength, and hope. And all of those words with through the lens of looking at the photography and thinking about what those words mean to you, to your family, to your community, um, I, I think there's a lot of inspiration and power that can come through that. So I'm really hopeful that it will uh, bring our community together. It'll create some unity. It will also um, allow people to, to think about perspectives outside of themselves. Yeah, all right. Heading into Women's History Month in March, too, mm -hmm. a lot of that programming ties into the future of female, and this is an empowering opportunity. Tell me a little bit about uh, school visits or or how you reach the local students or regional you know, bus trips. What kind of happens in a facility like yours? Yeah, we're going into a busy time at the pavilion with um, group season of, we have uh, age groups from all over the state coming to our facility to get to experience science, performance, art, and this exhibit specifically. Um, we also have groups coming from various companies and organizations as a, a way to connect um, employees together and other communities as well. So this exhibit really has something for everyone. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the behind the scenes you know does it come in a in a truck <laughs> in a shipping crate like you have to hang these things you have to plan do they give you guidelines on how yeah take us behind the scenes to the work that you do and with I your team I will say that as a curator and an artist myself that the craftsmanship of the crates that artwork comes in for a big traveling exhibit yeah. like this is really exciting to us. <laughs> They're beautiful, beautiful boxes that protect this artwork as it travels across the country. Oh, wow. Um, so there are guidelines as well. Um, come, when you have a traveling exhibit, the, the curation process has already been done, and we've selected that work to come to see our community. Um, but getting to connect it to our space of the Everest Gallery inside the Visual Arts Center is still a creative process of how to make these these stories connect to each other, the flow of um, a large space for how people are going yeah. to walk through and experience that. Um, and that's a really, really fun process as a team we get to do. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that flow then. Are you hoping, are you trying to slow people down, speed them mm. up, you know, get I am always yeah. an advocate for slow Slowing looking. Down. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Slow looking. So uh, there's sort of a flow of the exhibit going from theme to theme and wanting to create some restful areas where you can sit and contemplate what you've experienced. Uh, there's some really wonderful labels and text that goes along with this exhibit. So telling those stories through the visuals as well as the text is a full experience. Is there an image or two that stood out to you as an artist or as a woman that you say, mm. That one's going to stick with me. Um, I will say, so photography, we've seen a lot of these images. They might be highly recognizable from the covers of uh, the magazine in the past. Um, however, seeing them in person in the gallery setting is a really powerful and different experience. So I really encourage you to come out and see it in person, even if you might recognize some of these images. Mm -hmm. uh, the one that I will say continues to stick with me just in this first week of having the exhibit here is the green-eyed Afghan girl. It's an image that has um, very highly recognizable and has a lot of story and narrative to it. Um, and it's, it's just a really powerful image walking into the gallery to yeah. see in person. This is a famous image. If you, you know, close your eyes and think of National Geographic mm -hmm. and a portrait, this one probably it's, is the one that comes to your mind. And that photographer, I think, sure. went back and found that woman mm -hmm. as an adult yep. and photographed her again. Mm -hmm. And that gets to this idea of um, the story behind the story and what photojournalists 
do, and again, I geek out a little bit, yeah. but I studied this in college, mm -hmm. and those, the way the lens can provide a barrier between the journalist and the subject, and the times when journalists have been confronted with, you know, relationships. Mm -hmm. How do you portray somebody mm -hmm. um, without uh, minimizing them or marginalizing them? National Geographic is on the forefront Absolutely. of these kinds of conversations. Um, how do we go from just voyeurism in the pages of a magazine to really impactful stories? And that's exactly what thinking through what photography as a medium can yeah. mean. Um, does it create a barrier? Does it create intimacy? Are we just documenting from afar or are we connecting? Um, I think there's examples of that throughout this exhibit uh, from these really, uh, you know, noted, notable photographers. Yeah. All right. Um, we will put links on our website up to what happens next with this Women, a Century of Change. That is an exhibition um, coming from the Washington Pavilion, National Geographic's at the Washington Pavilion. It runs through June 30th, and the first of the three-part speaker series. If you missed that, that is on Tuesday, February 27th at 5.30 Central Time. We'll have more information on the Uniting Generations of South Dakota Women event and others on our website at sdpb.org slash news. Janet Anderson, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. In the Moment is produced by Ellen Kester and Ari Youngman. Our executive producer and director of journalism is Kara Hetland. SDPB's news director is Josh Chilson. Our videographer is Jordan Henderson. You can see a lot of his visuals on our website, on our YouTube page. Um, look for us there. Look for us on Instagram at SDPB News. From all of us to all of you, have a great weekend. We thank you for listening.